Hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. Welcome to the Broken Recorder Sessions number one. If you've been following along, you will know that my recorder died on me, so the question was how to use the time until my replacement arrives. My solution to the dilemma was to reach out to fellow writers. It was always my plan all along to include chats and readings from others, and I did a few chats, as you know. So now I'm presenting you with um, a sampler, if you will. Six fabulous writers have sent me readings to share with you all. This is what we call at conventions a rapid-fire reading. Each writer gets 10 minutes to do with what they like. The idea is to share some stories and introduce you to some more writing you may be interested in. The only thing missing from the live version is the chocolate. You're going to have to supply your own. Now the details about how to find more from each author are in their individual recordings. Uh, I've also put the information in the episode description on Podbean. And I will also include it on the Totally Fantastic Title Facebook page. So I'm filled with glee to have Brenda Carr start us off here. Brenda's a good friend of mine, and she has an amazing view at her house. So it's a wonderful place to hang out for a week and write together. And one of the things we do in the evenings when we have these little retreats is read aloud to each other. And that was where I first heard this story. Now, I got to hear the whole thing, but today Brenda will read just an excerpt. You can read the rest of it because it's coming out very soon in an anthology called Joyous Christmas. I know we're actually in the Halloween season, so not really looking at Christmas and other winter holidays just yet, but jot this one down. Dear listeners, Brenda Carr. Good morning. My name is Brenda Carr, and I'd like to thank my friend, Krista Wallace, for the opportunity to read an excerpt from my short story, The Gift. I'd also greatly like to thank the colleagues that are going to be uh, reading with me, and I'm really looking forward to hearing the rest of the readings that are happening here once they go online. The Gift is one of two stories I have in the Joyous Christmas Anthology that began as a Kickstarter in 2019 and is now available in ebook and hard copy through Books to Read and also my website, brendacarr.com. So without much more ado, here's the beginning of Joey's story of mischief and mayhem. The gift. Joey stood up in the crib looking at the white stuff drifting down like pillow feathers outside. Mom had made a nest for him and told Joey to sleep, but he wasn't tired. He'd already had crib time today. He wanted his brother to come home. They lived in the Pacific Northwest, where Hector said this stuff never happened. His brother was at school right now, and Mom had promised when Hector came home, he might take Joey exploring out in the snow. Hector was older than Joey had fingers. Hector knew a lot and he told Joey things about school. Hector went to school every day all by himself, but Joey wasn't ready to do that. 
there were lots of new things to find out right here all by himself. Mom liked to call Joey my little explorer. Sometimes when she whispered, my little explorer, not big but soft, with a twinkle in her green eyes, Joey would get a happy squeeze. Yesterday, Mum had sniffed his neck and nuzzled his cheek and called him my cold, rosy cheek explorer because him and Dad had been outside. That's because he helped Dad go down their slippery driveway to put the garbage out. Joey held the can lid, and after that, him and Dad explored Monkey Bars Park across the Calder Sack. They brought Mum home a nice leaf and a frozen bird. Joey thinks this would make a great ornament on the tree, Dad said to Mum. Joey wasn't sure why Dad chuckled. After that, him and Hector and Mum and Dad decorated the Kissmas tree. It had been fun. Joey wasn't sure where the bird was now. It was only a bad thing if Mum said, my little explorer, in a big grumpy way. It meant Joey was going to spend time in the claws foot bathtub washing the sticky off. Or worse, he'd have crib time like right now with the wookie tookie monitor awake, woof dog under the crib and the door shut. Joey'd had crib time this morning for unscrewing the bottom hinge off the screen door. He was on a chair with the screws driver when Mum found him. Who needs screen doors in winter? You don't need to be two and a half fingers old to know that, do you? Joey had tried to explain this morning, but Mum didn't listen. She wasn't ready to listen right now either. Joey had thought ears rings looked nice on Mum, so why not on Woof Dog? Joey'd let Woof Dog smell the ears clip just the way you're supposed to, and Woofy said, Erf, like he wanted it on. He'd lick Joey all over the face. It was easy to put Woof Dog's ear, to pat Woof Dog's ear and put the clip on. Oh, Woof Dog screamed. He knocked the other clip flying and Joey too. The flying was fun, but the hitting down wasn't. Woofy'd ooted so loud it made Joey and Mom both scream. Woof Dog had took off through the kitchen and threw the whole pile of pretty wrappings papers in the Kissmas room and knocked over the tree, ornaments and all. Mom came running, saw Woof Dog, saw Joey. She got to Woof Dog first and helped him stop a wooding. Mom had cried real tears and Joey had cried too. Putting a bulldog clip on his ear hurt Woof Dog, Joey. That's why he knocked over the Kissmas tree. Joey wanted to ask Mum why they were called bulldog clips. Wasn't Wolf Dog a bulldog? Wolf Dog had already forgiven him. Why hadn't Mum? Wolf Dog was snoring now under Joey's crib, but Mum wasn't happy. She said Joey needed to think about what he had done to Wolf Dog. Wolf Dog had got hurt, and that was bad. Mum told Joey her little explorer needed lay down time with Wolf Dog. Mum was shaking. She said Woof Dog was sleepy and Joey needed to watch him, careful to see that Woof Dog was going to be okay. Mum had dried his cry marks and kissed him. She'd carried Joey here and turned the, woof, the wookie tookie on. 
Wolf Dog went to sleep right away beside Joey's crib. He looked real okay, and Joey told Mum so. He said he wanted to help Mum do present wrap-up, but she said he'd helped enough by watching her do wrap-ups, and she'd gone away with a shush finger to her mouth. He had helped good, though, and he knew how, how, how she did it. He was big enough he could do wrap-up on his own if he needed to. Joey did a bounce on the crib until the whole thing squarked at him. He knew exactly how hard to bounce before he broke something. He didn't want to break the crib again. Uff, uff, he called to Wolf Dog to come out. He needed to wake up Wolf Dog by being really careful. It was important to be careful and give Mum a good surprise. Then maybe he'd get the small explorer words and have a happy cuddle. If he could just get out of crib time, he could sneak downstairs, play with the wrap-ups papers after Mum fell asleep. A big sigh from the wookie-tookie above the clothes closet door told him Mum needed crib time way more than he did. The wookie-tookie was way out of his reach, but it still told Joey things. Right now it helped him hear Mum working hard. The crinkle of paper said Mum was putting wraps around presents don't touch. There were presents under that tree already, even before Santa. Presents don't touch were special. A box came yesterday from somebody called Asimon Prine. Out of that big box came a present don't touch from Nana to Joey, and one for him from Uncle George, and one for him from Cousin Teddy, and most of them probably from, for, from everybody else for him. Joey could hardly wait to tear the wrap-ups off, but right now the wrap-ups were going on, not off. A snup sound told Joey Mum was pulling scratch tape off the dispenser. Scratch tape was the best. You could use it to tie your ankles together. That is the end of the gift little excerpt. And I do hope that you will want to read the end of the story, uh, along with checking out the, the specials that are available uh, from the Joyous Christmas Anthology and also to other anthologies that were done at the same time, uh, along with checking out my website, brendacar.com. And I'd like to thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. This is Brenda Carr, over and out. People often ask writers, where do you get your ideas? Well, all over the place. Mine have come from everywhere from dreams to things I've seen in the grocery store, of course the RPG I used to play, and even one crazy performance with my rock band. Now, Manny Frischberg told me that this story, a flash piece called The Singer and the Song, came from a National Geographic article he was shown at lunch one day at MissCon. In the story, we meet a whale, a finback blue whale cross. The National Geographic article was about this very whale who sang at an unusual pitch, and so he wrote a story about it. The Singer and the Song was originally published by EvilGirlfriendMedia.com. Even his mother did not hear him cry. 
His song was so different from all the others. I didn't understand that at first. I was elated, just a lowly grad student out collecting data on a research vessel between semesters, and I had been the first to hear a new whale song. An undiscovered species? I thought they might even put my name on the paper. I played the recordings at triple speed, gathering data points without ever really listening. I could hear the difference, of course, long before I realized what I heard. Creaks and squawks like the pods of blue and finback whales we had come to monitor, but in a vocal range far above either of their songs. A different song from the one the pods composed and sang together throughout the mating season. Only the males sing, and only during the winter mating season. We can easily tell them apart. Blue whales sing at around 17 hertz, and the finbacks an even lower 12. A rumble at the very edge of hearing, more like a buzzing in your jaw until you speed up the playback. But even at triple speed, his call was special. The way his voice rose and fell like an infant's wail. To my ears, at least, mournful. I replayed the recording at normal speed, and for the first time I heard the song just as the hydrophone had recorded it. A shudder swept up my back. It's just a wild animal vocalizing, a mating call, I had to remind myself. Since we were there for the season, I logged his movements in and out of the inlet where we lay anchored. His tone made him easy to single out. The longer I listened, the more I began to sympathize though I'd been taught to try not to. When I went back to school in the fall, I looked for earlier recordings. The project had been funded just that year, so I searched other studies that might have recordings with similar patterns. None. I discovered that the Navy had tested sonar in those waters several years ago. It took a FOIA request in getting the ACLU involved to get the data. I heard his distinctive calls on their tapes. I traced him back a dozen years. Working backwards, I heard how his song evolved. In his first years, he sounded nearly normal. Still a calf, his tone seemed almost right. His vocal organs must have been so small. As years went by, his voice changed. The tone's increasingly wrong, Mimicry made more bereft because, to the others, he was screeching. All the whales in a pod sing a single song, composed each fall on the trek to the warm tropical waters. There the calves are birthed and their next year's siblings are conceived. Hearing his songs over those years, I sensed him losing hope. Each year he diverged further, and each year he joined the blue whale pod later in the spring, like an exile condemned always to follow, never to join. For my postdoc, I tracked my whale through the next three mating seasons. The longer I listened to him, the more I felt a kinship grow between us. I wished I could tell him that I, too, am a solitary creature, adrift alone in an ocean of my own kind. I knew I had conjured this connection in my mind. How could he even know I existed? Why would he ever care? Yet the whale had invaded my soul. By, that, by the time I actually sighted him, I had my name on several papers and, and an assistant professorship while on my way to tenure.
His body was the unmistakable blue the world's largest creatures are named for. The same round body, but slimmer. Also unmistakable, the dorsal ridge that gives finback whales their name. He was not a new species, but a hybrid, a mule. He shared many of the features of both species, but in the end he was neither. Now, seeing him for the first time, I truly understood. After that, nothing else mattered. My grant was up, and my new proposal was turned down. Even so, I had my plan. I knew I'd have to fund it myself, so I sold my house. Too much space for a loaner anyway, and bought a sailboat, equipped it with hydrophones and a synthesizer with underwater speakers. I set off, searching for a range, a tone. I found it in the voices of Pacific humpbacks in the seas near Tongo. I stayed with them through the summer, learning to play their song until my synthesizer gave a pretty good approximation. When the humpbacks accepted me, odd accent and all, I headed north. I found him as I knew I would, still trailing the pod that he always did, still alone. I followed them when the pod left for the Arctic, learning to play their new song as they created it. When I taught it to my whale, transposing the notes and chords as best I could into a key he could sing. He and I fell further and further back from the pod, changing course a bit at a time, luring him away. Out on our own, I started changing the blues song, bending it toward the one I'd learned from the humpbacks until my thin blue sang only theirs. In the southwestern tropics, I began picking up the humpbacks' calls, and little by little I backed away. Somewhere near Kiribati, I lost him. His voice had merged with the chorus. These days I play my synthesizer for myself, adrift alone in the world. I tell myself he is just a wild animal, but I miss him like a kindred soul. Manny and I shared a reading time slot at MISCON 2019. I read from Duchess Keeps Her Head, and he read from a story called Ever After, a delightful fairy tale which appears in an anthology called, Well, It's Your Cow. <laughs> you can learn more about Manny at mannyfrischberg.com. I'm a big fan of Rhiannon Held's work and have read all of her Silver series as well as a couple of others. So I'm super excited that she sent me this reading to add to the episode. I'm gonna sit back and let Rhiannon tell you more. Hi, this is Rhiannon Held. I write urban fantasy, including the Silver series under Rhiannon Held. And I also write space opera under RZ Held. And that's what I'm going to be reading to you from today. Um, it's available right now only on uh, Kindle, um, and also Kindle Unlimited, uh, but I'm hoping soon that it will be collected as a, uh, a print edition, because it's uh, several novellas. Um, so I'm going to read from the first of the novellas in the Amsterdam Institute series, uh, which is called Clean Install. 
Genevieve had expected her first sight of a Pax Romana soldier up close to be a slam into her stomach, even worse than seeing recordings of them on a battlefield. Even if this particular soldier was supposedly retired and now working for a security firm, she was still Pax Romana. But the woman who motioned her into a conference room in Suga's security headquarters wasn't wearing body armor or even a sidearm. She had a hard face under her burst of short black hair, but smiling changed it. The pleasantness of that smile made it harder to imagine her dead, along with all the others in what Genevieve had worked out must be Pax Romana's reserves, but Genevieve had known that might be a danger, had prepared herself for it mentally, as much as she could with no formal training. It didn't matter what pleasant expression this woman might paste on top, when the flesh and blood below teemed with technology tuned to nothing but violence. The woman settled herself at her desk. I'm Cusco Ariopi. Call me Ariopi. I hear you're looking for a job with us. You understand we tend to draw our personnel from a certain pool. Are you ex-military? She motioned Genevieve to another chair. Genevieve's back's muscles twitched in protest even looking at the chair's back, so she remained standing. No, but I am a nanite install. The words tasted wrong on her tongue. They might be wrong, but she built her cover story to allow those kind of mistakes, assuming this woman and her superiors accepted the cover story at all. Her communication system registered a ping and Genevieve allowed it to respond in kind, but blocked any further access. At least, she hoped she had. It wasn't precisely like reading words in a status message on a screen, nor precisely like hearing sounds from an earbud. It was more a wider understanding like a visualization of a screen inside her mind that conveyed its information without any need to pause to read or listen. Maybe. If she knew how to work any of this, she wouldn't be here. So you are, Ariope said, and spread her hands flat on the table, rather than jumping to her feet to attack. Genevieve suppressed a flinch anyway, anticipating her next question. How is that possible? Genevieve thought about touching the small data storage device masquerading as a post earring in her right ear thought about it and didn't, because she at least knew enough to break herself with such a transparent tell. Still, the thought alone of the virus, waiting patiently to be released, grounded her with the weight of why her story had to be perfect. I used to work for Tendara's Heron. They were the defense contractor that had developed the nanites, or so her research said. If her research was wrong, she was about to find out. Her back muscles spasmed and she set her teeth until the pain passed. So you're what, a lab accident? Ariopi stood and approached Genevieve, more curiosity than suspicion in her expression. Even the early test subjects were military. They wanted to develop civilian applications for the technology. Genevieve deployed each word carefully, using as few as she could. To her own ears, her system allowed her to speak with a core planet accent, but she wasn't sure she trusted that. Pay too much attention and everything she said sounded eerily wrong anyway, like listening to a recording, only it was coming out of her own mouth. I was not... Fully briefed, shall we say. Given that, I declined to continue my employment with TH. And here, a dash of truth to season it all. I left. I tried to lock it all down and live normally, but I was not successful. I need to learn the systems. Learn them, and be allowed onto the soldier's network, if the virus was to do any good. I hoped someone here could teach. The next spasm was much worse than she'd expected. Was it the stress? She'd had a bad episode, the kind with screaming, sobbing pain, on the flight to this planet, and between most of the episodes preceding it, she'd had at least a standard week's grace. The background pain and the peaks of the episodes hadn't gotten any better since she woke with the nanites, but neither had they gotten noticeably worse until now. Can't say I blame you for not sticking around for the orientation when they install on you without your informed consent. 
Ariope's brows rose, and she caught Genevieve's forearms as Genevieve's knees bent, instincts telling her to go fetal against the pain. She braced Genevieve up and examined the skin along the inside of one of her arms. How much have you been relying on biopower, girl? Don't know your regular color, but you're looking sallow to me. Biopower? As opposed to... To finish the question, Genevieve tried to think of another power source her nanites could be using and came up empty. It wasn't like she plugged in, even after the installation process. Right. Outside. Ariope kept a grip on Genevieve's wrist and used firm pressure on the back of her shoulder to turn her and escort her into the hall. Genevieve wondered if she should resist, but she was sure if Ariope wanted to subdue her, with training above and beyond the strength enhancements Genevieve shared, not to mention being pain-free, Genevieve wouldn't be able to do much about it. They ducked into another room, this one with a wall of windows. The spasm in her back had eased enough for Genevieve to receive the full effect of the vista like a slap. Everything but the small area around the spaceport was mountains, magnificently visible from this height in the Tsuga security building. Smaller ones, crumpled in green, eased into larger, white, over creased stone. Between the two closest, she caught a gleam of water, some icy lake, perhaps. Recreation planet, Ariope explained absently, as she slid a plexi door open and broke Genevieve's spell as she urged her through. Nothing worth the cost of mining, so they started the terraforming process when they built the refute station, and it percolated on it, along on its own. The railing around the balcony was chest high in Genevieve. She judged she'd have warning to fight back if Ariope tried to push her off. She couldn't guess at Ariope's real purpose, though. Vitamin D? Ariope turned Genevieve away from the view and braced her hands on her shoulders. Now, wings out. Why? Genevieve asked the question more to stall than anything. She'd hidden the things for so long it was hard to convince herself to unfurl them, instead of keeping them tightly clenched beneath the panel in her back, where no one would, could see. But this woman was a nanite install. She had her own damn wings. Probably larger and more impressive ones. The silliness of that thought broke Genevieve free and she shrugged off her jacket. She'd gotten tired of ruining shirts, so she'd altered her current one to dip low in the back, like some kind of club wear. The air was chill enough she bundled the jacket over her arms to at least keep those warm. Because biopower is inefficient, and it robs the rest of your body if you make the nanites run on it long term. Ariope crossed her arms and waited. She eyed Genevieve. You're aware that your wings are photovoltaic, I hope. Oh. Genevieve couldn't find anything else to say. She was aware now. She'd known that things must have had some kind of purpose, since she couldn't fly with them. Unless she was doing that wrong, too, and Ariope would be flapping out towards those mountains any minute. But the soldiers she'd seen in recordings had never done that, and they hadn't seemed to bother keeping any of their other abilities secret. She closed her eyes because that helped her visualize the wings, unfold, up and out, like stretching in the morning, thousands of little carbon composite scales snapping into larger panels until the wings moved like a bird's, a central outside rib and panels that overlapped or stretched apart like feathers. She'd stare at them often enough, tabloid up to make a double mirror with the ones in the tiny bathrooms of the shitty housing where she'd spent the first few months after leaving home, and then in the tiny cabins of cheap, dingy, long-haul transports out here. In places, the matte, steely color darkened to almost black as if tarnished, and it looked as smooth as metal, though of course it was much lighter in weight. She started to feel jittery, like downing a borderline legal energy drink and having it hit all at once. The jitters transitioned into something near panic, her heart pounding so hard she could hardly hear anything else. With each beat, the irrational fear grew and grew. She'd been discovered. Ariope was going to denounce her any moment. Shit, girl, Ariope said, and her face softened in unmistakable sympathy. I called our medic. He'll be here in a moment. Genevieve had to pin down each thought with an effort. 
She hadn't seen Ariope call anyone because she'd called using the Nanite comm system. And she couldn't have called back up to cap and she could have called back up to capture Genevieve instead, but why would she need it when Genevieve was currently so distracted and weak? Genevieve hadn't been found out yet. She needed to keep it together. Ariope took one of Genevieve's hands and rummaged in her pocket with the other. Here. She pressed a small object into Genevieve's palm. Genevieve had trouble focusing on it at first as her panic was mutating, becoming an awful foreboding that pain was coming. It just hadn't arrived yet. She peered at the pill, small, heart-shaped, and a powder pink shade that had no can that no candy dare use anymore. This is a recreational euphoric, she objected. She hadn't fought this far and this hard to take refuge in street drugs, never mind the danger of blabbing something of her secret purpose while high. The nanites laugh at bigger and better things than sweetheart, Ariope said, expression going briefly ironic, much to my frustration. Consider, consider it medicinal. It's not like real painkillers work. The nanites just burn them out of your system. With sweetheart, you still feel the pain, you just don't give a shit. She pressed Genevieve's hand with the pill up to her mouth, and she didn't fight it. She swallowed. Sweetheart was hardly a true serum. Consider this a calculated risk. Maybe she was a coward, but she didn't want to hurt. She'd hurt so much already. That was an excerpt from Clean Install by Rhiannon Held. And to learn more about Rhiannon, visit RhiannonHeld.com. I met Sandra Hunter at a writing retreat in Port Alberni. At that time, Sandra was just about to launch her book, The Guardian Forest. She's going to read to us from something else today. So why listen to me talk about her work? She'll take care of that. Here's Sandra. Hi, Krista. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, I'm Sandra Hunter. I write Fantasy to Enchant. You can find my website at sandraahunter.com. I've got two books up on Amazon currently. My first book was um, a young adult to adult high fantasy set in an alternate earth quasi-medieval setting. It's called the it's called the Guardian Forest, and it's the first book in the Ellen Ray series. Um, this book won the Dante Rosette Award first place for high fantasy in 2014. I was so honored, and uh, I was I'm continuing to write in that series, the Ellen Ray Forest series, book two. I'm working on currently, I'm about halfway completed, and that's very exciting. And this year, I published an urban fantasy uh, called Daughter of Earth and Fire, and it's going to be book one of the Dragonair series. And I'll just give you a brief outline of where I'm going with that. This can also be found on Amazon as either an ebook or a print book, if you prefer that format for yourself. Daughter of Earth and Fire, Sandra A. Hunter. A genetic marker in Jada's bloodline catches the attention of the black dragons, who in their human guise operate a flight school at North Fraser Airport. Their leader, Griffin, means to claim her. The dragons soon learn that Jada is beloved of the Earth Mother Elemental, and she, too, has plans for the young woman. This is all news to Jada, 
a young veterinarian starting her new practice and who's long been resigned to a quiet and studious life. Suddenly thrust into the dragon's world, Jada learns that a world of magic underlies everything she'd taken for reality, especially the ancient and ongoing war against the Naga serpents that must be conducted without humankind's awareness. Jada joins the outnumbered dragons in their efforts to save humankind and the planet from cataclysmic transformation into the Naga's preferred habitat, water. Though her fledgling heart now truly beats for the first time in her lonely life, as the Naga wreak destruction ever closer to all she loves, a desperate Jada urges the Earth Mother to use her, even if only to be sacrificed, a precious arrow loosed at the dark. So I've chosen an excerpt where Jada, our heroine, our protagonist, is finally going to find out from Griffin what his secret is, what's going on here. She looked at Griffin, her eyes wide. What kind of differences should I have noticed? Tell me, you're changing my universe here. Her eyes narrowed. He's looking down and cracking his knuckles again. There's something more. Jada shook her head and stood up, pacing the cedar floor a few restless steps before she turned. This ancestor of mine from four centuries ago, how do you know this story? She crouched by his chair and made eye contact. Griffin? His dark brow arched as he looked down at her and placed his palm over his chest. The wounded dragon your ancestor helped was yours truly. Griff shook his head. I was very young. This Naga had almost flooded her village out. I wasn't waiting any longer for my elders to return to the mountains. I decided to take matters into my own hands, so to speak. The Naga damn near killed me, but I got it, tore its heart out. He made a claw of his hand and indicated a twisting motion. Jada's mouth opened to speak, but Griff's fingers were suddenly across her lips. His attention focused outward into the darkness. Listen, he whispered. It's gone quiet, she whispered back. It's true. Jada felt a chill that had nothing to do with the night air. She rubbed her arms. The frogs have gone quiet, and the owl too, unless it's flown. She stretched her senses to the spirit stone, a freeze-on of foreboding rift against her skin. Jada, get in the house. Griff's voice was harsh and flat. Lock it up, don't come out till you hear from me. She stared. Griff's entire attention remained focused on the darkness at the back of the property. He frowned and she saw the pulse in the muscle above his jaw. His body language, alert stance and clenched hands spoke of a man battle ready. Jada, she jumped, her hand flying to her throat and then angry at betraying her own nervousness, she demanded, no, I'm staying with you. Jada strained to see the long grasses behind the garden. Her defiant tone wavered somewhat. Something is out there, isn't it? She extended her senses, listening as Griffin was doing. Yes, I hear it. A swift susurrus in the tall grass. Something's coming and fast. So we have dragons, we have earth elementals, we have a young woman who has traces of dragon blood. It's all there waiting to be found. Krista, thank you again for letting me read for you and for your audience. Signing off, Sandra A. Hunter. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Sandra. It was really nice chatting with you again. Be sure to visit sandraahunter.com. I've known Edwin Downward in person and on Twitter for a few years now, but am entirely unfamiliar with his work. So I'm absolutely thrilled that he chose to use this as a chance to do some reading aloud and to allow me to include it here and get a little taste of his stories. Here he is reading One's Place. Hello, my name is Edwin Downward. If you want to know more about me, you can find all the links at edwindownward.com. With thanks to Krista, I would like to read a short portion of a story I call One's Place. The plaque read, Ensign Acer, Guard Fleet Admissions. June Trinamer wiped her hands dry before reaching for the handle of the door. It had taken a lot of finagling to make it this far. She couldn't allow herself to slip up now. The young man behind the two organized desks glanced up. Please be seated, Miss Trinamore. Nothing good ever came from a person who kept their place so neat. She sat, hands on her lap. The answer looked her in the eye with an unwavering gaze. So you want to join Guardfleet? Her sister had a similar knack for seemingly seeing past her guard. Yes, I mean, it has become clear that Guardfleet offers me a world of opportunities I may not get elsewhere. I see, he looked at his desk display. I also see that you have demonstrated a remarkable aptitude for engineering and related physical sciences. Her heart leapt at the thought. Yes, indeed. Ask anyone who knows me. Circus and Gears is my middle name. Yes, that is on record, along with your age. He looked up once more. We usually do not consider candidates before their 18th birthday. A cold sweat, sweat swept down her back in spite of all the time she spent preparing for this subjection. All the required paperwork would be filed, with a few tweaks to improve her odds. Then you understand my need to ask the question. She held herself to a simple nod. They were almost through the script. She'd worked too hard to blow it now. What then should I say about these points in your entrance exams that are best labeled as problematic? Problematic, yes, but not fatal. If I understand my counselors correctly, the rigorous training for guard fleet is just what I need in those very areas. That's an interesting thought. But you should know there is no place in guard fleet for mavericks. Which brings me to my next question. How much did the recruitment of your sister affect your decision to apply to join guard fleet? She looked at her hands. The one question she feared the most. Susan always got the breaks. She had been, been the one who laughed first when June had stated she wanted to follow Susan into Guardfleet. It was her turn. She raised her head. I admit it freely. My eyes were open to the possibilities when Susan, that is, Ensign Susan Trinamore, first told us she had been approached by representatives of Guardfleet. And now wasn't the time to falter. And I learned so much about Guardfleet that I've never known before. It was a taste that told me to look closer. And when I did, it became clear that Guardfleet would be a perfect match for my own skills. Your engineering skills? Once more she nodded. I come from a small abysmal research community. And everyone has told me that my talents were being wasted within the confines of a world located 2,500 meters under the surface. You had other options, like your sister college, university, technical institutes. I know your parents are well prepared to see you go forward. And waste all that time on donkey work when assignment women guard fleet would put her on the front lines within a year? That is true. 
and I was thinking along those lines until the guard fleet option was made real to me. Very well, let's concentrate on that option for a moment. What was he looking for? What did he suspect? Aside from giving you an opportunity to handle the latest in high-tech equipment, what is Guardfleet to you? This is it, the make or break. She took a deep breath. Guardfleet is a symbol of something much greater than itself. The Commonwealth of Planets, the greatest experiment in representative interstellar government ever encountered. Guardfleet exists to tell the universe that the Commonwealth was willing to stand behind the ideals of freedom for all upon which it was founded. Guardfleet makes it possible for peace-loving citizens everywhere to go about the lives without fear. There is no denying you would have made a great recruitment ad. The question is, do you really believe that is true? As long as she got in, she straightened her shoulders. I do, and if anything, the process of applying to Guardfleet has only strengthened my resolve. Guardfleet is where I belong, and I expect nothing less than the chance to prove it. The ensign tapped his console, then stood and reached his hand across the desk. In that case, cadet, welcome to Guardfleet. June's heart pounded in her ears as she stood to accept his hand. And once again, you can learn more about Edwin at edwindownward.com. The first book I ever read of Carol Berg's was Song of the Beast, which is a standalone. The next thing I read of hers was the one she's going to read from today, The Spirit Lens, book one in the Collegia Magica series. And after that, I read its sequels, and then I went on to read everything she's written. I'll hand the floor over to Carol, but the, at the end of her reading, she'll tell you how to find her work. My name is Carol Berg. I come from a family of teachers and I sometimes write about them, too. The novels of the Collegia Magica are a double-agent murder mystery rooted in the last school of magic in the kingdom of Sabria. Book one, The Spirit Lens, is narrated by Portier, a librarian and failed student of magic. The gibbous moon hung huge and yellow in the cloudless void, bathing the quiet vineyards south of Morona in ochre and gold. As the road led us into the soft hills, it dipped into a wooded vale, creased by a shallow river. We should halt until sunrise, I said, weary to the bone. Rest the horses here by the water. Can't say an hour's sleep would go amiss, said the mage, yawning. A white glow swelled from his staff. Using his muted, steady light, we found a clearing by the water. Old dung, wheel tracks, and scattered ash evidenced that other travelers had used the place. Dante touched his staff to a blackened ash ring and murmured, Incendio, confinium a circumna. Sparks snapped and flew from the heel of the white stick and inside my skin. Flames sprouted. The bright enchantment devoured me, a surge of gold fire from feet to head that shivered my bones. The questions I prepared for him, the arguments about terrible events, all fled before my longing. Creator's hand, what makes the difference, I said. Your enchantments live and breathe. Beside them, every other I've known seems but an image of an image. Dante walked away. A quarter of an hour, half an hour, he strode the perimeter of the clearing. When he returned to the fire, he crouched and planted his staff between his knees, gripping it so tightly that his knuckles gleamed pale. Magic must rise unhindered from one's own depths, he said. Your mind is riddled with barriers, solid as mortared walls. 
and you maintain this stubborn belief in elements, particles, and formulas, as do all those taught at Saravane. Near spitting with impatience, now he'd sloughed off indecision, he jumped to his feet and beckoned me to the path that had brought us here. Learn this path, he said, scooping a handful of the black dirt and cramming it into my hand. Squeeze this, smell it, examine its color and composition. Mixed with old dung, bark, the rot of fallen leaves and decaying trunks, and all that's washed in from the river in flood. He scuffed his boots in the rutted track. See how worn the path is. Consider its uses. Tired travelers may be fearful ones. Scavengers, wheels, horses were decently protected by the water and the tangled trees, but we need to ward against intruders who approach by the path. Where do you begin? Rote memory spat out the answer. Wards require impermeability, base metal, I said. Use your mind, Portier. Think not of divine elements, but of what's here before you. Dante crouched down and tapped a pale knot protruding from the dark soil. The path is laced with roots. Hornbeam clearly from the color, and the branches hanging over your head. So examine the tree roots with your fingers, then look up, recalling everything you know of hornbeam. Modest in height, its wood pale as birch but hard as iron. Seeds winged like insects. Feel these leaves crimped like women's hair. He swept his arm back the way we'd come. Someone's coppiced most of the hornbeam in this wood. But the stand has been ill-tended, left to grow for a long time. Perhaps the blood wars wiped out those who minded it. My staff is hornbeam. The wood is strong, almost impossible to work. It binds magic well. Now, wait. He crashed off into the tangled underbrush, returning with the slender limb he thrust into my hand. Use this to scribe your enclosure, and circle these things in your mind as well. I dumped my handful of dirt atop the exposed roots and used the limb to draw an elliptical pattern around the pile, taking his word that this would eventually make sense. Questions and mysteries nagged, yet magic lay at the heart of our great mystery. I had to understand what Dante did. Now, fashion a simple crossing ward. You're to be wakened when a warm body passes the barrier. Build the spell pattern in your mind. Your hand can serve as the warmth needed. Surely you know your own hand better than anything in the world, just as you know best what warning can wake you from sleep. So lay your hand atop the roots and dirt. When the pattern is prepared, seek the power that exists in it already, joining it with what lives in you. Spell pattern. Not so easy as it sounded. I'd never been required to recreate a pattern in my head, a structure of understanding, of random ideas like crossing, or of properties like warmth, provided by physical objects that could be stretched, arranged, molded, solely by force of will and inner vision. But carefully, precisely, as if nurturing the last flame that might keep me living, I considered warmth, crossing, strength, barriers, intruders, waking. And then I reached for what magic might live in hornbeam and soil, and the night and the warmth of my own hand, as well as that born in my blood." As a blizzard wind, enchantment rushed upon me, billowing, thrumming, slamming, sweeping through my heart and soul and mind in a sere glory. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Dante and Portier and their great mystery, look for the novels of the Collegia Magica on my website, www.carolberg.com, or your favorite bookstore.
Wow, it, it never ceases to amaze me how many wonderful stories are out there. I just love hearing other writers talk about their work. Thank you so much to Brenda, Manny, Rhiannon, Sandra, Edwin, and Carol for sharing your stories this week. I hope you enjoyed today's sampler and that you now have some more stories to add to your reading list. I'll bring you some more cool stuff next week. I do hope my recorder arrives soon because I really want to get back to reading Gatekeeper's Deception. Ah, maybe I'll go check the mail. Thank you to my family, Matt, David, and Heather, and Maggie. Thanks to David and Sharon. Thank you to the original six. And thanks so much to you for coming along on this ride. Now, go be fantastic.